May's sponsor of the Spamming Zero podcast is ttech.com. ttech is a customer experience firm that focuses on several different industries, but one in particular is retail and e-commerce to all of our listeners out there. Their website, again, if you need the phonetic spelling of that, it's tigertigerechocharlie.com, T-Tech. I love what they have on their About Us page. The power of big and the agility of small. They're a big company, but they have the agility to do a lot, just like a small company does. I also love it, the fact that they're in six continents, 50 languages, employees globally is 69,000, and their client MPS is plus 71. Pretty awesome. A couple of other things about T-Tech is they're customer obsessed, digitally empowered, and outcome focused. Some of the CX solutions they offer are customer care outsourcing. So if you need a BPO, they can be your partner. Contact center outsourcing, as well as CX solutions and strategy. Reach out to ttech.com. I'm James. And I'm Brian. And this is Spanning Zero. Welcome to the show, everybody. James Gilbert, I'm your host. Um, thank you for all of our listeners out there. You've been you've been with us now for quite a while and love that you are listening. Um, please, if you are listening today, tell others about this. I am super excited because today we are joined by Darren Vader. Darren, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. Yeah, I guess you want me to talk a little bit about myself, huh? Yeah, tell the audience, why are we talking to you, Darren? Sure. It's, it's fun to talk about yourself. Uh, so I'm the founder of the Christmas Light Emporium, um, an entrepreneur first, I would say. But the Christmas Light Emporium is our e-commerce business that um, is very seasonal. Uh, we sell Christmas lights um, and accessories and all that sort of stuff online. And we're in um, super, super heavy growth mode in that space. Also involved in a few other things, including the design and installation of giant commercial light shows for people like the Atlanta Braves and NASA and a lot of others. And, um, and I also do music production for some people you may have heard of and some people you probably, a lot of people you probably haven't. <laughs> We're going to dive into all this because I'm telling you, like one of the things that excited me about having Darren on was that musical production stuff, because I myself, I've never produced an album by any means, but you know, when I went through the situations with my eyes where I couldn't see, I learned how to play the piano by ear. And so I started like, you know, what's considered writing and composing my own music and singing to it and all that fun stuff. And now it's kind of become a fun little thing with our family. And so I have like a deep appreciation for the music that people create. And I want to dive into that. But before we do, we're going to do that in just a little bit. I want to like talk, talk to us. What is your hot take when it comes to you? You run an e-commerce business and you're, you're a, you're a small shop. You don't have a lot of folks helping you. That's true. What's your biggest piece of advice that you're going to give others? Um, I suppose it, uh, whenever anybody asks me for advice, I always, I always try to pinpoint the context because generic advice is basically useless um, out of context. I think that most people are in business to, to be profitable. We had a conversation the other day about nonprofits also sort of at least have to break even or be profitable. You know, it's, it's like everybody has to be profitable or you don't exist. So that would be where I think the most valuable advice would come from is right about <laughs> profitable. <laughs> and uh, so we used to, or I did anyway, um, the people around me would laugh sometimes, but I would say that the thing I was the most proud of 
was that we didn't have any full-time employees until literally about a month ago, but we've been around since 2012 and that's achieved through automation. And that's- Hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. If you didn't just hear that, (laughs) what year is it right now? It's 2023, which means for 11 years you operated without employees. True. See, now I now I always have to elaborate. People are like, "That's not possible." <laughs> you know who, who worked for you? R two D two, you know, kind of thing. Um, yeah. So it's it's a bit of a stretch. We had a couple of people that were part time contracted, but they were paid on a commission basis, which is weird, right? In the e commerce space, those were people who worked in our warehouse, and it was only one. It was one guy, um, and he got paid a percentage of the value of every order that he shipped, and that's that's how we controlled cash flow in a seasonal business was um, there were sometimes we didn't have to pay him at all because he didn't do anything for us, you know? So that's, that's how it goes. Uh, and that, that's how we did everything. So I always would tell people just, you know, that's how I, I managed to build everything I do is I always start with no inventory. I drop ship everything until something starts to sell and be profitable. Then I bring in the inventory and, you know, just one step at a time. But whenever you see somebody who's all gung ho about a new business idea, um, and it's all the time. It's almost everyone that thinks they want to be an entrepreneur and they, they have what they think is a great idea. And if it's a product-based idea, there's often, you know, development costs, or even if it's just a retail type of an idea, they, they just want to dump a bunch of money into inventory and think that, you know, the world's going to show up and beg them to sell them the product. And um, so my piece, biggest piece of advice would be don't do that. <laughs> Darren, when does the season actually start for you? Like, when do you start planning? Um, now it's all the time, um, all year long, but it, it's sort of cyclical, you know, um, throughout the year. So our cycle is annual versus a lot of other businesses that are not so seasonal. All businesses are seasonal, but not like this one, but they, you know, they, they tend to think of things either monthly or quarterly, usually quarterly. And yep. so we, we think of things about only really one quarter. We, we think of <laughs> quarter four and that's it. That's all that matters. It used to be really true. Um, now it's it's not as true. So we divide the business up into sort of activities. That's what drives our annual cycle, which is Q1 is all about preparing inventory for the, the, the coming Q4. And Q2 is about new products and uh, any kinds of major technical changes uh, we might want to make, you know, to any of the technology that we're using. And by the end of Q2, we start to sort of receive the new inventory that was you know, p- purchased in Q1. So there's a lot of work around preparing new inventory. Um, and then we do what I call lock and load at the end of Q3, which is nothing changes after, after about end of September, we don't change anything. Um, everything stays status quo from then until the end of the year. And then we have a big blowout sale and get rid of as much inventory as possible and do the whole thing again. <laughs> it's always interesting to me because you run a business that is very heavily reliant upon the seasonality of, of the year, but also you still don't like <laughs> ramp up your employees during that seasonality time. And you've, you've set yourself up to where you can automate a lot of it. I don't want to talk about like necessarily the specific technology that you're using to do the automation, but after talking to you prior, um, one of the things that I, felt like was really cool is how much you lean into automation to help get through those moments. So what's your piece of advice for people that have a lot of fear around automation? Um, They're fearful that it's going to have a huge impact on their revenue streams and their customer base. Like what's, what, what would you tell them? I would probably first tell them that if they're afraid of technology and afraid of automation, 
specifically, then they're probably moving too slow and they won't be around anyway. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it's it's sort of a fact of life. I mean, I, I actually still have hesitations. Um, an example would be we have an ability to never touch an order when it comes in, whether we're shipping it direct from our warehouse or whether we're sending it off to another supplier to drop ship. We don't have to intercept those orders in any manual fashion at all, but I do. <laughs> and it's, it's my fear of automation in a way. I, I can't even think, I, I think that I'm, I'm actually, I know that I'm spending more time when I do that, a, a lot more time than I need to be, because I, I started doing that manual interception of orders, meaning I checked almost every order, at least at a glance to make sure everything was correct before it got automatically shipped off, you know, sent off somewhere electronically to be fulfilled. And in, I did that initially, then we're talking eight years ago when I started doing that probably because I was afraid that there'd be too many mistakes and problems yeah. and problems, you know, a small problem in an automation scenario creates kind of a backlog of problems. Um, so you have to do your automation, right? Or, or you, you have more problems than you started out with, but I just never changed that habit. So to this day, I still check at least at a glance at the end of the day, every order that comes through, you know, <laughs> that, that doesn't happen starting around early November when um, there's just too many to, to, to do that. But, uh, but it is the thing I, I could just let it all go completely automated and, and not ever look at any of it, but I care too much about making sure everything is done right to do that. Which I think is a great practice because I think that that, that alludes me to another point that I think a lot of people are feeling right now, which is there's a general fear that like AI is going to take over people's mm -hmm. jobs and like, Oh, you're not going to be able to have a job anymore. And that's just not true. Like Darren just provided a perfect example. It does require human intervention. It requires you to check it. It, it makes want to make sure that it's running smoothly there's with technology there's always going to be hiccups and things that don't operate perfectly and i think that human intervention is the key to that but i want to shift gears now we talked about christmas light emporium what you think about automation how you manage that business from a seasonality perspective now i want to talk about this music stuff if you're not able to see the video of this podcast and you're listening today go take a look at it on YouTube um, when, when it's, when it's ready to go, because you're going to want to see Darren's background. He's got two guitars behind him. He's got a fun little, like Andrew Carey. Uh, does that light up by the way? It does. It's a little, uh, we call it like, like neon. <laughs> yeah. So Darren, I don't know if you can reveal any of the artists that you've worked with, if there's like some contractuality behind that, but if you can, who have you worked with? There are some names I can name, and most people who hear hear this probably wouldn't uh, wouldn't know most of them um, because they're not uh, based in the states. Um, so I work relatively often, a couple times a year, with a guy out of Venezuela by the name of Sam Ort, who is um, kind of a very quick up and coming dance music producer out of Venezuela. He just won. I'm trying to remember which one it was. It was one of the you know, we, we have this sort of people's choice awards, you know, sort of a thing. Yeah. And uh, they, they have a similar thing in Venezuela, which which he won that just recently. But he's he's a super nice guy. He's fun to work with. And very often I, I, I will write a, a, a track and I just I just put a, like a terrible demo together. <laughs> I just won't even put any effort into it. And I'll just send it off to Sam and say, here, do something with that. 
and uh, and he will. And and we actually have a single coming out on TMG Two Dutch Records in May that he did. That they, that's exactly how that track went down. Um, so sometimes that's how things go out. Other times I'll be producing other people's music. There's a girl I love and uh, she's in Belgium and I can't pronounce her name. Otherwise I would try for you. Uh, <laughs> Lisa Lett is her first name. I can't, Varakis, I think is her last name. No one knows who she is because I found her and uh, heard a demo and I, I just thought I want to be a part of that. That's amazing. So she doesn't have, I don't think, anything released at all yet. But uh, What genre does she... Right. Um, I, I'd say it's going to end up, I guess, maybe it would fall into the pop category, sort of more dark, introspective uh, pop, I suppose. She's got a beautiful voice, you know, um, fantastic songwriter, too. But yeah, we're in the middle of that one. I work with some artists um, who, two singers who were top 10 on American Idol, whose names I can't mention because they do have contracts. But, <laughs> but, uh, uh, hey, you, you just you, you plugged the, you plugged American Idol in there, so the audience can yeah. go have some fun doing some research on who go. you've worked with, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's fun. It's a fun business. Darren, when I mean, there's, it, I don't know if this is going to be like totally revealing to a lot of the audience that might be listening today, but I don't think it, it kind of goes without saying that working with musical artists has always been quite difficult. Um, there's a lot of opinions. There's a lot of specifics. Talk to us a little bit about that because that's your customer. And so like, talk to us about the customer experience when you're working with really difficult people and you have to manage through that. Yeah. So the, something I learned really just kind of recently over the last couple of years is that being in music production and having artists as your customer doesn't work quite the same way as any other customer relationship. I've ever had, meaning that I get fired more often. (laughs) (laughs) That uh, I just got fired about two weeks ago from a project. And I say that, you know, in in the music industry, nobody calls it being fired. It's just um, when you begin a collaboration with a new artist, there's, you know, there's a lot of emotion in, in, in music and, and there's a lot of emotion in art. And that's what it's all about. Way more than there is in, you know, any any other kind of business outside of art. So there there has to be a fit on, in the creative direction, you know, just like everybody laughs when you hear, you know, such and such a band broke up because the guitar player had, had creative differences with the drummer or whatever. And you sort of laugh and roll your eyes and go, oh, they're just being, you know, babies because nobody could figure out how to split the $4 million they made last week or, or whatever. But it's, it's, it's true. I mean, it's, you can't work with people in a creative pursuit if you're not headed down the same road. Nothing good ever comes of it. So the best thing to do is to try to figure that out quickly. And that's what I mean by getting fired. I, I, I put it that way just because it's fun to say. Um, but, but really, it's a matter of when you, whenever I start working with a new artist, we spend probably two weeks to a month of Zoom calls and, and some writing sessions and things just, just to see if we're on the same page. And if we're not, we just shake hands and say, you know what, if something comes up that's along the lines of what we're doing here, then let's try again later. But this isn't going to, this isn't going to be the thing. So yeah, it's, it's fun. And, and then there's, you know, within the industry, a lot of people don't realize, but there's, there's a whole sort of unwritten rule book about how to behave when, when you're in the production side of music, because the preparation is different. You know, an artist generally has a pretty solid vision of what they think needs to happen in any given situation. And they're not always right. So 
to, and they're not always good either. I would say most, I, I'm going to call it 50, 50, um, about 50% of singers don't sing very well. So the only reason they sound like they do is because of people like us. You can't say that though, in a room with, with, with and I hope none of them hear this, but yeah. well, the thing is though, is their fans are going to hear it live, right? Uh, yeah, but even live now, you know, um, ever since I, I have a good friend who was a bass player and singer in a very well-known country band back in the late nineties, they had a couple of big hits and sang, sang, a, a the male part on a, a song that was a number one, still, still one of the biggest country songs of all time. They ended up suing their, their boss and, and getting, you know, they got fired. You don't, you don't sue your boss. That's a bad, it's a bad idea. So he, he talked about all the different job offers that he had after that, that project, um, went away. And, um, one of them was, um, uh, from a, a band that is to this day, still very well known, um, had asked him to, to join them. And, uh, he said he didn't want to do it because he, he hated one of their songs and he didn't want to have to play it, you know, every single night. But part of the conversations he had with this band who is still touring today was about how they perform their music live. And because they don't perform everything live, um, they don't even perform their own instruments. Most people don't on a record. Most people don't know that, that on a record, that's the only thing on there is maybe the voice of the singer. That is actually what you're going to see live, even live people, people play to uh, backing tracks almost every single show. Um, does that including vocals and they used to call it lip syncing <laughs> now they call it backing tracks <laughs> i remember learning about this when i started um kind of like writing my own music and and singing to it i don't claim to have a great voice by any means but i remember learning about this and it really bothered me when i found <laughs> out about it like i was like wait a minute like there's people out there that are making millions and they don't even write their own music like they just show up and record it in a studio. And it is kind of wild, like when you really dive into it and you learn about all the people out there that really don't. Yeah. <laughs> but well, then you learn about like producers and things like that, that are just incredibly good at all of that. And those are the ones that I, I tend to lean and respect a lot more. <laughs> I'd say that. And, you know, I, I'm saying all those sort of negative things, but the reality is there's the other 50% or more who actually are massively talented. And yeah. those are the ones that last forever because they're good at what they do. So let's let's talk a little bit more about this, because I do think that there are some relatable topics that can apply here. Like you're dealing with really particular customers, ones that feel as though their art is being challenged at times. Right. Exactly. And I think that this is this is actually applicable in my mind to a lot of products out there. People fall in love with them. They can't get them. You make a change to something in the process with the customer experience and people get upset or both negative and positive changes, right? Can make a big difference. Like you look at the changes that Chewy makes, for example, with the pet world. And I hear all the time about how like there's people that have to euthanize their pets and Chewy will send them flowers. And like, that's a proactive type of experience. And when it comes to like the musical industry, I feel like the intricacies of working with an artist, because you're an artist yourself as a producer, right? And so you have these two worlds clashing together in some ways and they, they need a mesh and they need a mesh quickly. So what is some of your tricks to making sure that those mesh quickly? Yeah, I think the biggest one is research and preparation really you know i mean i don't go into a new session i have i uh, have a new one saturday which is interesting and that's two days from now and uh it's with my daughter's boyfriend 
who is a singer and he's a really good one and he's super young. He's, I think he's 17. So I'm super looking forward to that, but I need him to want to work with me <laughs> because I love, I love his voice. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm spending time where I, I'm preparing sessions within our recording, you know, and writing tools um, with ideas ahead of time. I'm, I'm throwing lyric bits and pieces together ahead of time. I'm researching the shows that he's done to see what songs he's sang at his shows to get a sense for his taste, you know, as a, as an artist. That's when I'm coming into it with, with someone who I, I want to work with. Um, I do have a leg up in that I at least have met him before, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, but in a, in a, in a, in a case where it's someone you've never met before, which happens most of the time, that's kind of scary because you don't, you don't really have anything to go off of other than usually what happens is somebody says, I think you would work really well with so-and-so and somebody makes an introduction. And because there's this common person between you, you agree to a session, but you're both kind of thinking that this third party may be wrong. You know, what if they're wrong? What if we're not a good match? So all you can do at that point is listen to each other's music and uh, try to be prepared with, you know, the types of sound you bring to the session, the type of lyrical content you bring to a session, type of instrumentation you bring to a session, sometimes even about the place that you meet to conduct the session, you know, plays into the personality of, of the artist. Some people hate working in studios and prefer, um, you know, living rooms <laughs> and, and things like that. So uh, sometimes you don't know those things until after that first session. But Darren, what's your favorite type of music? Oh, wow. That's a loaded question. I love almost everything. There's a lot of, believe it or not, modern I don't even know what you call it. I guess it's called pop now. I used to call it hip hop, but um, I think it's just it's, it's the most popular music right now that I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand <laughs> it. I don't understand the, the, the monotone nature of the delivery and the lack of music in it. Um, but it's it's super popular. I don't understand it to the point where I've been consciously making effort to learn to to understand it, <laughs> you know, sort of what is it about this music that's attractive? Um, but if I had to pick something and I, and I actually did this recently where I, I sat down and I said, if I were to go say I was going to start a new project and it was going to be an album of all me, I wrote it, it's all me and I'm the artist. I decided, I think it would be, um, I think what people these days call synth wave or it's very heavily 80s new wave influenced pop, basically, that, that would be what it would be. But with a little darker side, like my favorite artists are like Depeche Mode, right? My, yeah. You know, one of my favorites of all time. So, yeah, I think it would be certainly along very synth heavy, <laughs> you know, something along that line. I'm also a huge 80s hair metal fanatic, which is really weird because <laughs> I don't write or produce anything in that genre at all. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard of this. They're they're a pretty popular band now, but they didn't start that way. And I, I find them to be incredibly talented because they do like write, sing, produce all of their own music. I shouldn't say produce because I don't know, like I'm sure they're working with some producers, but they're called AJR. It's super, go check them out. I, I think that they, they actually showed at their show. I went to one of their shows live with what, like my, my son who's obsessed with them and my wife who really likes them too. And we went to one of their shows and they showed how they reverse engineered a, a song and how they came up with some of the some of the unique sounds that they use and man it was wild to see that live and they performed it live and showed how they did it live and i was like that was cool <laughs> that does sound pretty cool yeah and it also reminds me of one of the things i love about these conversations is i don't i've never heard of that group 
So I love it when somebody throws something out there that I don't know because you know, I just I just typed a note. Check them out. Here's here's another fun one for you. It might fit. It, so this artist is is a hip hop artist, but a little bit less monotone. Uses a lot more of like they actually sing to their to their songs as well. The dynamics of their song songs is very very interesting. And but it's a it's a it's a hip hop artist that also doesn't sing, swear a single time. Ah, there you which go. Is, this is key. <laughs> which is rare, right? Because like a, a lot of hip hop is like swear, swear, a little bit of lyrics here and there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so hit, like this hip hop artist's name is called VF. Just the letters VF. Go check go check him out. He, he's awesome. His new album's pretty amazing too. One song in particular that I really like on it is, um, let's see here. What is it called? I've been listening to it like all week. <laughs> it's called Happy. Oh, I really like that one. I, it one. sort of reminds me of a, uh, there's a track that I'm, I'm actually supposedly going to finish today. Uh, I've been working on the track called Salt on Your Tongue. Um, this singer is a very sort of sexy track, but her, I wish my wife would stop texting me. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell her I said that. She's texting me all the <laughs> all the new age music that you need to listen. Yeah, to, probably. Right? <laughs> uh, anyway, so this song she had rec- we written and re- wrote and recorded this bridge, which is for people who don't know, it's sort of the middle part of a song that um, is sort of uh, changes things up a little bit and then sends you off into the final parts of the song. And um, I didn't I didn't think it really fit so well, and so we were throwing around the idea of bringing in a, a rapper to, to to change it up a little bit which I, I did. And uh, I was playing that song for uh, a, another producer that I know who actually, strangely enough, is he's produced a lot of Depeche Mode stuff over the years, but he's listening to it. And he's like, man, this is great. This is great. This is great. And then he got to that bridge and that rapper started and he stopped the track and he said, who is that? And I told him, he said, well, tell him to go get his own record. He doesn't need to be on this one. <laughs> he hated it. But guess what? He's, he's still on it. And he just re-recorded that vocal take last week. And that's how it's getting released. <laughs> so, <laughs> even opinions among producers can can vary i love it so i i do want to just quickly dive into some of the some of the work that you're that you're doing there especially with like the produ- production stuff i'm curious especially as somebody who has written music myself what is the hardest part of writing a song is it the lyrics is it the story you got to tell behind the lyrics is it the beat is it the bridge what is it i, I think that's going to be different for different people, even different producers, um, for me, it's anything related to lyric. I can fluently put an idea out of my head or someone else's reasonably quickly um, when it comes to beats and sound selection and sound design and, and all of those things. And arrangement is a piece of piece of cake. And I can, you know, throw down a, a pretty decent lyric with a catchy hook pretty easily. <laughs> but usually it's just comes across as a bit corny. Um, writing a great story song is the hardest thing for anyone, and I, I said it's different for everybody, but the reality is even great lyricists have a very hard time writing a great story song. And which is, I think, why today, you, if, you, if you were to listen to any, um, I don't know, playlist or radio station or, or whatever you listen to um, and switch between genres over the course of, I don't know, say every four or five songs and, and do a comparison test of lyric, you would find, I think, um, I've not done this test, but here's what I believe you would find is I, I believe that on sort of modern pop or, or hip hop type of channels, you'd find little to no lyrical depth at all. And <laughs> no in, in the pop space, 
eh, hit or miss. It's probably 70, not so much, 30 or 40. You know, maybe there's some depth in there. Um, and you skip straight to country music and you, it's going to flip. You're going to see, if you don't have a great story song in the country space, you're not, you're probably not <laughs> in the country. You're not doing it. It's not a thing. That's true. And then you, you go as far as even classical music where there are no lyric, but if you're an instrumentalist, like I, that's where I started as a trumpet player. That was, that was where I started everything. So instrumental music is the first experiences that I ever had. And when you understand the melodies in instrumental music is the same thing as a voice in vocally or lyrically driven music, you just hear it differently. The words speak differently. But if you understand that, then you say, okay, who's, who's the greatest lyricist of all time? And I, I believe they're, they're the greatest instrumentalist of all time or actually the best lyricist, which is sort of a weird thing to say, but um, I believe that's true. So who do you think is? The best actual lyricist? Yeah. Who actually writes words? Uh-huh. Um, man, I, I'm going to say something. I'm going to go on a limb um, because I've had a, an infatuation with her for a few years now, but that would be Taylor Swift. And you have to put it into context in that she's not writing stories that have what well, usually um, uh, a deep need to change the world. Um, but she writes great stories about herself and about her experiences and about her life and has this knack with the rhythm and the lyric delivery and things that n- nobody else except maybe Ed Sheeran kind of has. Ed Sheeran, that's a good one. I was not expecting Taylor Swift. Nobody does. It's, it's a bit, Whoa. you know, it, it, it is pretty, it is pretty funny, but whenever, you know, what about Adam? What about Adam Levine from the old? Oh, sure. Five? I mean, if you want to get right into like forget the performers and go straight into songwriters, which <laughs> I mean, let's throw names out. And nobody, nobody knows. I, I mean, Adam Levine for sure, and certainly people know who that is. Let's talk about um, oh gosh, the singer from One Republic, uh, Ryan Tedder. It's like yeah, Ryan opinion. Tedder. He's like the greatest songwriter that's ever freaking lived and a genius um, at it uh sharon vaughn let's go way back right she's uh she's a uh, you, you you know this the uh willie nelson i think made it famous <laughs> it was a long time ago my heroes can always be my, my heroes have, what is that my heroes have always been cowboys or yeah something like that whatever that's right well she wrote that you, you know and then and many 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 other uh both pop and country hit songs she listened to something I had written. It was written as a pop song, but it came out sounding kind of country. So I, I went to Sharon and I said, what do you think of this song? I was asking about the production of it. I was asking, should this be a country song? And she just ignored all of that. And she basically tore my lyrics to shreds. And uh, <laughs> you know, she's like, I'm a story writer and you've got some problems with that story. And so an example was, this is a purist. Keep it like Sharon Vaughn is a purist. Like she there's, you can't have anything wrong with your lyrical story. And the very first line, the song was called Weekend. And it was about, you know, it's basically a kind of a party song. It's just about looking forward to the weekend. And so the very first line of the song is, I've been looking forward to the weekend for a minute. And she stopped right there. And she said, no, you haven't. You've been looking forward to it for a lot longer than a minute. Like, that doesn't make any sense. You need to change that and say what you really mean. And I'm like, Sharon, come on. It's a thing, right? It, it, it doesn't mean minute. It means a long time. She's like, I don't care. Doesn't doesn't matter. Say what you mean. Like, oh my gosh, she's tearing me apart. <laughs> so, but, but I got such a complex over it. That song is still sitting on the shelf. Like nothing's ever happened with it because now I'm all paranoid that it's a uh, that it's not good. But. I love these stories. I feel like we could talk for hours about this stuff because I just find it so fascinating. It is fascinating, and it's you know it's it's a love too. It you know 
the whole, for me, the whole thing started, I say started because I didn't do anything in music for 30 years and COVID came along and reminded me of what I really loved about life. And, um, that was music. So that's what we did. And just one music has gotten me through some of the toughest times of my life for sure. Yep. If I wouldn't have had that piano, I would have been in trouble. So, so <laughs> what's your go-to instrument to play? I was just about to say it is. It is funny. I always say the box, meaning the box. everything I do is inside the box, which means my laptop. <laughs> and uh, so, if I do say so once in a while, I, I don't. I don't play any instrument anymore at a level that allows me to play it live or in any of our recordings um, because everyone around me is so much better at that than I am sure. at, at the level we're at now you know but I still do obviously you have to play in the parts when you're recording tracks and and things like that um, whenever I use guitar loops for demos if that demo gets picked up or is going to be sold in one form or another I always re-record the guitar parts I don't I never release anything with with a you know ripped off uh, guitar loop in it, so I have to have these guitars back here for that purpose. But but I can't really play a guitar. In fact, I might have to do eight tracks of guitar to get what a guitar player might do in one. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, and it's kind of the same with piano. You know, I love piano, and in my younger days, um, I played in uh, bands as the keyboard player, not yeah. the, not the pianist, not the same thing. So my son, who is a pianist, asked me one day what the difference why I made such a big deal about the difference between a pianist and a keyboard player. And I told him that a pianist plays with two hands and a keyboard player plays with only one. That's the difference because one hand's always up in the air, you know, and the other one, <laughs> you know, playing on the keyboard. Oh man, this is awesome. Darren, we are at time and I want to ask you the, the last question. And I try to ask all of our guests this that come on the show. Tell us about an experience that you've had in your life it could be related to music. It could be unrelated to music. It could be related to something that you purchased and you were like, holy smokes, that was amazing. Tell me about an experience that just left you like shocked at how good it was. I have, I have so many of those. Um, I live my life based on those. I tell my kids, <laughs> if you don't live a life, if, if you, if you, if you're living a life that people don't believe, then you're living your best life and don't worry about it. That's how it should be. So mine was when I decided I had never left the country. I'd never traveled internationally ever prior to me deciding that I was going to go to Mount Everest. And so I did that and it was 2014, which for anybody who follows that sort of thing would remember that 2014 was the year that uh, there was an avalanche that killed everybody and everybody left. And we were there when that happened. So that was life changing. Um, it was awesome. It, it's, it's When I talk about it, even I still get a little bit emotional um, because it was the best experience of my life in a million different ways. You know, learning how to walk for weeks on end with no entertainment <laughs> and no work to be done, just walk. That's something I believe that everyone should try to do because you'll find that you will be able to do it. For me, it took about three days to shut the brain off and enjoy, you know, and just use the time wisely, I guess I would say, you know, there's, there's a, there's a long, what do they call it in Spain? There's a, the, there's a pilgrimage trail. I can't remember the Santiago trail or something like this. They call it, um, that I've had on my hit list now, you know, like some people spend a month, some people spend six months walking that, that trail down through Spain over the Pyrenees and in Spain. But so there was that kind of experience there. Um, there was the experience of being in a place where 
Kathmandu, Nepal, for example, where most people I know just, I actually had somebody say they thought that was just a fictional town from Indiana Jones movies, um, you know, and it, it looks like a fictional town from an Indiana Jones movie. Um, but to, to see people in those kinds of places um, that live the way that they have to live and uh, they're happier than we are by a long shot. And it makes you really think about priorities and, and, and things, you know. Um, and then to end that sort of experience with a global tragedy um, and, and watch it happen and then watch the news channels reporting absolutely false information. Um, it, it, there was this whole thing of that experience that was super positive and super uplifting and super uh, spiritual in my life, changed my life for the better in a million different ways. Um, and at the same time, I, I don't know if it was, you know, uh, some universe reaction to all of that by s slapping us all and saying, hey, that's cool that you had that great experience, but don't forget it's reality. And and just as many bad things happen as there are good things that happen. And that's just life. So deal with it. Mostly it was positive. <laughs> Darren, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. You've been awesome. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Don't forget to subscribe and like that podcast if you if you like it i mean if you don't like it don't get don't don't like it but if you can give us a review we'd love it any star would be appreciated let us know how we're doing and if you have a topic or a guest that you want me to bring on the show let me know um you can reach out to me on linkedin thanks again